Well, Christ Church, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Just one verse this morning. Uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Please hear the Word of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Would you pray with me? O Lord, as we once again come under uh, the preaching of Your life-giving, authoritative, efficacious Word, we pray that Your Spirit would illumine this truth to our hearts and point us to Christ the one whom we cling to for forgiveness and everlasting life. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. It's not unusual for Christians uh, to feel abandoned by God in times of pain and suffering, during seasons of affliction. Suffering often brings disillusionment and sometimes can move us to wonder, has God forgotten me? Is He still with me? Does He still care? Does He still love me? Dear ones, if you've had these thoughts, you are not unlike countless believers throughout history, even some of the more notable believers like Martin Luther, C.H. Spurgeon, Indeed, even King David expressed these desperate feelings when he cried out in Psalm 13 and verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? These are the words of King David, a man after God's own heart, the king of Israel. The first century Christians in Rome, those to whom Paul wrote this letter, surely would have conveyed similar sentiments. Why would we assume this? Well, because believers suffered in Rome. A faithful Christian witness was more often than not joined with some measure of persecution. You see, it wasn't culturally acceptable to be a Christian in Rome, as it might be in some parts of our own country, yes, even still. Believers weren't cultural influencers back then. Rather, they were cultural exiles. Christianity was viewed by the typical Roman citizen as narrow, prudish, bigoted, oppressive, disloyal to Caesar, and subversive to the Roman Empire. And so it was common for believers to suffer for their faith. Paul, of course, knew this, and he himself experienced it firsthand. In addition, like all Christians throughout history, these first century believers in Rome experienced the painful and ordinary effects of the fall, including illness and death. It's the weakness that Paul was alluding to in Romans 8.27 that we considered last week. 
that weakness is not only true of non-Christians, it is also true of Christians. We are human. We are fallen creatures, and we deal with the effects of the fall. And so it was in the context of trials and suffering that the Roman believers would sometimes wonder, is God still with us? Has he forgotten us? Are his promises still true? Christ's church, Romans chapter 8, is, is largely written to answer these questions, these kinds of questions for God's people. It's written to reinforce that the suffering and groaning believers, it's, 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 it's to encourage and remind suffering and growing believers that God has indeed not abandoned us. To the contrary, as we were reminded of last week, He has not abandoned us. He lives in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Not only is God with us, He lives within us by His Spirit and is interceding for us according to God's perfect will. Verse 27. Moreover, and this is the point of our text for this morning, God, according to His will, works all things together for our good. That's wonderful news this morning for you, dear believer, that God works all things, not some things or most things or 99% of things. He works all things together for your good. Yes, even our thorny trials and hardships. As Robert Mounts reassuringly states, quote, God is at work in every circumstance of life. When Christians suffer, it's not that God has forsaken them or forgotten them any more than a loving father would forsake or forget his own child. No, God never forsakes his redeemed children. What we will see this morning is that God overrules trials and suffering for the Christian's ultimate good, working all things together for our benefit according to His sovereign purpose. John Stott writes that in all things, quote, God is ceaselessly, energetically, and purposefully active on our behalf. Praise the Lord, for that, it means, dear one, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but that's okay. It means that the suffering that we endure in this life is not meaningless. For the unbeliever, for the atheist, for the agnostic, for the confused, suffering has no meaning and thus breeds hopelessness. But for the Christian who believes the promises of God, we know that our suffering has meaning and thus actually cultivates greater hope for the future and all that God has for us. We do not despair. And our text for this morning, uh, may it be said, wasn't written for theologians and philosophers who love arcane discussions about Suffering and the sovereignty of God and the way they relate to one another. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? 
Many look to the Scriptures to have these kinds of conversations. But it's not for them. This letter was written to ordinary Christians like you and me, ordinary believers who in the midst of fiery trials need some reminding. Some reminding that God has not forsaken them. That He can be trusted and He is working out all things for our ultimate good. Do you need reminding of that this morning, dear Christian? I do. And I ask you that question knowing that you do. Because every Christian that walked through these doors today carry burdens and questions and fears and anxieties and doubts. But have no fear. God is with you. God, by His Spirit, dwells in you. You are united to Christ, and His promises are ever true. And so, as we plant our flag in this familiar text this morning, I want us to consider five points. Five points. First, I want to highlight two points focusing on what Romans 8.28 doesn't mean. On what it doesn't mean. Some common misconceptions of the text. And then I want to highlight three points that helps us to understand its true meaning and how it applies to our lives. First, let's highlight two errors that sometimes arise from this text. Number one, number one, all things for good does not mean that all things are good. All things for good doesn't mean that all things are good. We must make that distinction. Sadly, some misread or misinterpret Romans 8.28 in this way. They wonder how this verse can teach that all things that happen in a Christian's life are inherently good. The answer is that this verse unequivocally doesn't teach this. It doesn't teach that all things that happen are good. When bad things happen to us, we can call them bad things because that's what they are. They are bad. They are hard. John Murray states that, quote, many things are evil in themselves, and it is the marvel of God's wisdom and grace that they are made to work for our good. End quote. Therefore, when illness strikes, or we lose our job, or a friend betrays us, or a loved one dies, or persecution breaks out against the church, we are right to call these occurrences bad and a result of the fall. This is also true when we sin. When Peter denied Jesus three times, that was bad. It was sinful, though God would later use it in Peter's life for his good, for his spiritual growth and sanctification, as well as in other ways for the benefit of the church throughout the ages. But that never makes the sin itself good. It's only the way God providentially works in our lives that is good, not the sin or the suffering that we experience. This brings us to a second error that must be highlighted as well. All things for good does not nullify lament and grieving. 
All things for good does not void out tears and real sadness. Sometimes God's sovereignty is referenced as a reason to downplay or even dismiss sincere expressions of grief and sadness. The logic goes something like this. Well, this bad circumstance, this suffering, is a part of God's sovereign will for my life, and God's will is ultimately for my good. Therefore, there's no need for tears or lament. I need to brush it off, be grateful, and trust God. A kind of Christian stoicism, stiff upper lip. But this is a misapplication of Romans 8.28, isn't it? God's providence, His working out all things together for our good, doesn't nullify lamentation, sadness, and grief for the Christian in times of suffering. The Psalms are filled with godly lamentation. They're filled with godly lamentation. Jesus, our Lord, wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Christians grieve and express sadness over sin and the brokenness of the world. However, we grieve with the hope of the gospel pulsating in our chests. We do not grieve as the world grieves, for they have no ultimate hope or meaning to their suffering. We grieve and groan and sigh and weep with the celestial city in view. We lament, knowing that somehow, in some glorious and mysterious way, God will use hard circumstances for our ultimate good and for the good of those around us. Now, we already know different ways that the Lord uses our suffering because we are told. We were told back in Romans chapter 5. Would you turn there with me? After being told that we've been justified by faith and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, in chapter, chapter 5, verse 1, we come to verse 3, and it says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint or put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We see similar language used in the book of James chapter 1. We, we know some of the things God does in the midst of our suffering. He sanctifies us. This is working all things together for our good by sanctifying us and, 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 and chiseling us more and more into the image of Christ, giving us that endurance and strengthening that hope within us, even as we look away from this world to the next. So we must recognize that as Christians... We don't call bad things good simply because all things work together for good. And we also don't negate grieving and tears as a part of the human experience. But we grieve with, with hope. I want now to highlight three truths that emerge from this text this morning. Number one is this. It comes straight from the text. 
The promise that God works all things for good is for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This promise is for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Again, look with me at verse 28. Look with me at verse 28. God's word says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Dear friends, this amazing promise we are taught here is not for everyone. It's not for everyone. It's not a blanket promise made to all humanity that everything is going to work out in the end for all people, no matter what. Paul is not expressing what John Stott calls a a general and superficial optimism for all people, the kind of optimism you hear at funerals, for instance. No, that's merely an empty misconception based on feelings rather than truth. No, the promise that God works all things together for good is not directed to everyone, but only to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Of course, this should not be a surprise to those who have been tracking with Paul since the first chapter. Never once does the apostle teach that salvation is universal, irrespective of beliefs or behavior or life. No, after underscoring the universal depravity of mankind in the first three and a half chapters, Paul explains that salvation is not by our good works, It's not by our spiritual performance. It's not by our family heritage. It's not through our church membership. It's not uh, by our good intentions. But salvation is by the sovereign grace of God through faith in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. It's only through faith in Christ that sinners are set free from the bondage of sin, hell, Satan and death. Think of having chains, two chains on both arms, chained to the wall of death. Christ releases you from all of those by grace, through faith. In Christ, we receive the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we receive His perfect righteousness. In Christ, we are therefore justified, declared righteous in God's sight, not because of a righteousness of our own, which comes from the law, because that righteousness is flawed. We fail to keep God's law every day, but Christ kept it every day on our behalf and died on the cross for our sins. And so in Him we have forgiveness and we receive His righteousness and stand before God now justified, just as if we had never sinned. And there's more. Paul continues to write that those who are united to Christ are given a gift of the Holy Spirit, given the gift of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption. And as sons, we enter a process of spiritual growth called what? Sanctification. The Spirit indwells the Christian believer and is a kind of down payment or first fruits for future glory. Therefore, it should not surprise us to come to a verse like Romans 8.28 and see that it's exclusive to Christians. That is, for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Now, before we move on from this point, let's consider for a moment Paul's description of the Christian believer. 
Notice how Paul describes the Christian believer. We shouldn't just sort of leap over points like this. They're important. Look at how Paul describes the Christian believer in Romans 8.28. First of all, he describes them as those who what? Love God. As those who what? Love God. Christians love God. If you are a Christian here this morning... You love God. Not perfectly, of course. That's why we need Christ. But you love Him. You adore Him. You are not ashamed of saying so. Those who do not love God are not Christians. One might have an appreciation for God, a a respect for God, a, a knowledge about God. But without a love for God, a profession of faith is empty. Christians love God. Christians love the character of God. Uh, We love God's triune nature, that He is three persons, yet one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, same in substance, equal in power and glory. We love God because He is holy. We love God because He is love, because He is almighty and all-knowing and present everywhere. Christians love God because He is just and merciful and because He is jealous over His bride, the church. We love God because He is our maker. We love Him because He is compassionate and kind. And at the same time, He's full of wrath against sin. It is for those who love God, Paul says. That all things work together for good. But Paul qualifies this statement. Seemingly to clarify or to draw attention to the fact that the primary cause of our love for God is God's sovereign grace and calling in our lives. We love God because He first loved us. Got some Calvinists out there. We love God... Because he first loved us. This wasn't a, I come to God out of love for him and then he loves me back. No, this is, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And in love, God raises us to new life in Christ. He makes us alive by grace and through the gift of faith. We would never love God, not in a million years, if He hadn't first loved us. We would still be in our sins if God hadn't set His love upon us from before time and given us new hearts and a new life and the gift of faith in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful point this text is making. We would never love God unless He first loved us, but those who are in Christ love God. This leads to the second description of the believer, for those who are called according to his purpose. The promise that all things work together for good is for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Here Paul is referring to God's effectual call, his effectual call. That means a call that works. It's a call that doesn't go unanswered. It's a call that's effectual, that always is answered 
with yes. It's like the call of, that came to Lazarus. That's an effectual call that Jesus gave to Lazarus in the tomb, right? Lazarus was dead. The King James said, after four days, he stinketh. Lazarus was dead and he was putrefying. And Jesus came to the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus then didn't think, oh, let me think about this for a minute. Let me think about this. No, Lazarus was dead. He wasn't thinking at all. And then suddenly, when Christ said, come forth, he was alive and he came forward. And they removed the grave clothes and he was alive. Now, perhaps he was not too pleased being taken out of heaven to come down to this earth again. I heard a question this past week on a podcast by a child. What about those people that were in heaven and Jesus raised them from the dead and brought them back? Think they were unhappy about that? Perhaps so. We don't know. Maybe we can ask them one day how that was. But Lazarus didn't decide to be raised from the dead. He was just raised from the dead by Christ's effectual call. When the Spirit of God comes and calls one of God's chosen ones to new life in Christ, they rise, are given a new heart, and are united to Christ and given the gift of faith, and they believe and they love God. And all things work together for their good. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.11, In Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Some say, I don't like that. Sounds too restrictive. Not sure if I like God being in control about that. Who do you want to be in control? A foreign prime minister? Washington, D.C.? That's going pretty well. You want them in control of all things? How about yourself? Would you like to be in control of all things? You see, the alternative to there being a sovereign, loving, merciful, holy, all-wise God being in control is absolutely terrifying. Praise God that He is sovereignly in control of all things. He's working all things according to the counsel of His will. I want to ask you this morning, dear friend, do you love the one true God? Do you love God? Are you clinging by faith to Jesus Christ? If so, you are an object of God's mercy, called according to His sovereign purpose, and a beneficiary of God's providential care. Romans 8.28 is a promise for you. It's a promise for you to hold fast, especially in times of difficulty, especially when you're up at three in the morning with a, with a knot in your stomach and you can't sleep and anxiety is eating you up. This is a promise to remember. 
You say, Lord, I don't understand why things are happening the way they are. I don't understand why this circumstances has emerged in my life. But I know, Lord, I can trust you. And that even in this, somehow, you're going to work this for my greater good. And the greater good of those Christians who are around me. And the greater good of the church. You will do this. It's God putting together this this mosaic, and he's putting together one piece at a time, and we have such a limited perspective on, on this, and we don't see the full picture, and so we find ourselves having to trust. And beloved, God is worthy of your trust. He is faithful. He loves you. He loves you more than you can ever, ever imagine. And he is working all things together for your good. If you are not a Christian this morning and you are here, if you are not a Christian at this moment, this promise is not for you. But there is a word of gospel that comes to you, a very clear word of gospel. That God sent his only son into the world so that by believing in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. This gospel word for you, this good news, is that there is forgiveness. There is grace upon grace, and it is offered to you in Jesus Christ. Jesus has come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, all who are burdened, I will give you rest. Repent and believe the gospel now, today. I plead with you as a minister of the gospel to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Cast your life and burdens upon him. Trust him. And in him you will find life, life abundantly here on earth and life eternal in heaven. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And this promise will be for you as well. This is a promise to hold fast, especially in times of difficulty. This leads us to the second point that we want to highlight. Number, number two, the promise that God works all things for our good is a glorious mystery. We must say this. We're not going to have all this tied up and wrapped up this morning. Oh, I get it now. I understand this perfectly now. Pastor John did such a good job in his sermon. I get it. No. You may go away from here with a few more questions than you had when you came. It's a mystery. And we rejoice in the mysteries of Scripture. Amen? It means we trust. Who can understand the sublime mystery? We must admit that our minds are too tiny, our mental capacity too small to even begin to comprehend this truth. How can God work all things together for the good of His people? All things! Even the painful and and terrible things like fiery persecution from tyrannical governments and cancer diagnoses and fatal car wrecks and the murder of three nine-year-old children in Nashville. How does God work all of this out for the believers and the church's ultimate good? How does God in His providence work out all of human history for our ultimate good? Our finite minds cannot even begin to grasp this mystery. It's too great and too wonderful for us to understand. But by faith, we believe it to be true. 
By faith, we believe it to be true. I don't know how God spoke the universe into existence out of nothing. But I believe that he did. And I believe there's no other alternative than the truth that something came from nothing. Namely, God's word spoke and the universe came. There was nothing and then there was something because God spoke it into existence. In the last chapters of Genesis, we learn about the story of Joseph, don't we? As many of you will know, Joseph was betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery. He was a slave in Egypt. But after many years, through God's providence, Joseph was exalted to the highest, to the second highest position in Egypt. Only Pharaoh was greater than Joseph and more powerful than this former Hebrew slave. But after Joseph's father, Jacob, died, his brothers became deathly afraid of him. They were worried that Joseph would take revenge on them because of what they did to him decades earlier. But in Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 through 21, we have these memorable words. Joseph says to his brothers, quote, Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, my brothers, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Here we see God overruling the wicked intentions of Joseph's brothers to bring about his perfect will, to bring good not only to Joseph, but also to his brothers and to the entire world during a famine. Another biblical example of what man meant for evil, God meant for good, is, of course, found in the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mystery of mysteries. The greatest act of infamy. The most heinous crime ever committed. The crucifixion and murder of God's Son, the Messiah, becomes the very means whereby God saves His people. In Acts chapter 2, Peter proclaimed this mystery when he declared to his Jewish listeners in verse 22 and 23, quote, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, now listen, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God sovereignly ordained it. Man in his wickedness carried it out. And this is what we have in Scripture. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man side by side. What the religious and lawless men meant for evil, God and his sovereign purpose intended for good, For the salvation of the elect. They crucified the Messiah out of hate, jealousy, and malice. Out of true sin. But God overruled their sin. And some who even participated in his crucifixion were likely among those who heard Peter's sermon, fell under conviction, 
and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and were saved. The one they crucified out of hate later became the one they cherished by grace. God works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What about the thief on the cross? That day didn't start out very well for him. In fact, his life clearly was in the shambles. And he ends up being crucified with another thief and with Jesus in the middle. The day started out terrible. Carrying his cross to Golgotha, being nailed to a Roman instrument of execution, hanging. He even began ridiculing Jesus initially and then saw Jesus and heard Jesus. And by God's grace, believed in Jesus. And said, today will you remember me? And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. The providence of God. A terrible thing to be crucified, but the greatest thing that God would use this for his good to bring him to glory. How amazing is God's mysterious providence. Here we are reminded of that glorious and humbling truth from Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Dearest brothers and sisters, please hear this. Rather than trying to figure out God's purpose or anxiously fretting about what his purpose might be, perhaps it's time to simply trust him. To believe that he is working all things together for our good, no matter what those things are or how painful they might be. Here we are called to rest our heads on the pillow of God's sovereignty. Here we are called to embrace with both arms God's promise of future grace because he promises to meet us tomorrow even as he meets us today with grace upon grace in Christ. Whatever happens in life, we trust God that it happens for our ultimate good. What a comfort. And that's my last point for this morning. What a comfort. The promise that, God's, that God works all things for good is a profound comfort. The doctrine found in Romans 8.28 is intended to be a great comfort to our weak and weary souls in this life. The Heidelberg Catechism, which of course we refer to a lot uh, in this church, it was uh, written in 1563 uh, to serve as a confession of faith in the Protestant Reformation in the area of the Palatinate in uh, southern Germany. And this catechism uh, has been uh, endearingly called the Christian's Book of Comfort. The Christian's Book of Comfort. Why? Because it provides so much pastoral comfort. It speaks in such pastoral ways. And in verses 26 and 27, we hear such comforting words connected to the doctrine of God's providence. Please hear this. And it's asking the question about uh, and it's unpacking the Apostles' Creed, and it asks, what do you believe when you say, 
I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Answer, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence, is, for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul and will also turn to my good whatever adversary he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as almighty God and willing as also, uh, willing also as a faithful father. He's able to do this, to bring all things together for our good because he is almighty God. And he's willing to do so because he is our father. Question 27, what do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, so that, and so, governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Beloved, we do not believe in chance, luck, or coincidence. We do not knock on wood or cross our fingers. No, we believe in a loving and sovereign Father who works all things, yes, all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. I began this message by referring to Psalm 13 and uh, David's lament. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? It's how we sometimes feel in the midst of pain and suffering. Perhaps some of you are feeling this this morning. But David moves in this psalm from lament to praise. From, will you forget me forever, to verse 5, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. By God's grace, through the tears, let us remember God's precious gospel promises. Promises like Romans 8.18 which start off this section and remind us that it is chiefly about being assured of God's love in the midst of suffering, where he writes that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And also the promise of verse 28, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for these gospel promises. We thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and for the hope and salvation we have in him. And we thank you that in him, we need not live in fear. We need not despair. We need not be hopeless. And we need not to see our suffering as meaningless because you are, as our almighty God and loving Father, working all things together for our ultimate good as you bring us to glory. O Lord, we pray, even as it is stated in Heidelberg, question answer one, 
that this all would make us heartily willing and ready to live for you. We pray in Jesus' name.